Welcome to Pod HD, the podcast that explores university doctoral research all over the UK and overseas. My name's Guy Kiddy. In this episode, we're dealing with locusts, what makes them swarm and how to manipulate their mood. We also look at a little-known Irish political party in the early 20th century that had big ambitions for early political and religious reconciliation. But first up is Jonathan Smith of the University of Leicester. He begins by clarifying what a locust actually is. The actual definition of a locust is actually a grasshopper that swarms. In the actual grasshopper family, the Crididae, there are lots of species in there. Only a few actually can swarm, and those are known as locusts, essentially. And they are restricted, are they restricted to certain habitats? So, um, actually found around the world, and they tend to be found usually around the desert areas. For example, the species I use is from um, pretty much North Africa and Arabia. That's kind of the region that the desert locust lives in. Uh, how far down the line are you with your re- research? Because from the documentation you sent me, uh, I understood that... Um, it is, it is known that what causes or what seems to cause swarming mm. is contact between uh, locusts and locusts come into contact where, when food supply is short uh, and they are forced therefore to graze on small areas of vegetation uh, and it's that physical contact that then triggers uh, a very interesting neurological response that transforms the solitary grasshopper into a what you call a gregarious locust. You're using that information as your basis, but um, what, what have you found out so far and what are you hoping to um, uh, to build on as you go through your research? So, um, uh, so it's a kind of building on this introduction you've given. Um, the locust, so that species of grasshopper that can swarm, comes in two different flavours, as they're called. And so that's known as the solitarius phase and the gregarious phase, as you've rightly pointed out. The solitarius phase is just characterized principally by its um, very um, kind of low activity in terms of behavior. It's also got a very striking green coloration at when it's before, before it is an adult. So these, this particular phase seems specialized to be the kind of camouflage hiding behavior. This is its survival strategy. And this is a total contrast to the gregarious phase. And these, the actual animals in the gregarious phase are much more active, so they move much more, and they tend to actually attract to other locusts, unlike the solitarius locusts. And they also have a striking uh, black and yellow coloration in terms of just how they look as well. In terms of behavior, the switch from this hiding behavior to the much more active gregarious phase is actually only takes about four hours of gregarizing stimuli, as we call them, so crowding, essentially. So only four hours crowding switches this solitarius locust into a much more behavioral gregarious phase. So those Our, behavioral and physiological changes occur very, very quickly and yes. and all as a result of serotonin secretion. That's right, yes. So um, a paper back in 2004, um, they discovered that um, in the locust's thoracic ganglia, so these nerve clusters in its thorax, a bit like our spinal cord, we found that the, or they found that the levels of serotonin found in these ganglia actually increased ninefold after four hours of crowding in these, in these solitarist locusts. So they thought this corresponds very closely with the behavioral change. It's kind of thought that this may be a trigger or the kind of trigger mechanism for the behavioral changes occurring across the locusts. And another paper later then discovered that, well, if you manipulate the serotonin levels and manipulate its actions, you can actually affect its gregarization response as well. Our lab 
wants to build on this now. And we've been trying to basically look at more around the serotonin story and trying to basically add a bit more information, flesh it out a bit. So I've been myself doing some similar behavioral work. So I've been looking, trying to classify their behavior of the solitarius versus gregarious locusts and how they respond to crowding. And we've also found as well that they, there is an um, uh, interesting difference in between different animal strains, as we call them, so breeds. And so we've compared wild-derived populations. So we took some eggs from Mauritania a few years ago, and we grew, we've basically grown this strain in our lab. And we compared it with our locusts that have been on site for you know, several years, long, more longer. We wanted to see whether this, so, this lab strain, this long-term this long-term strain kept in the lab is different in terms of its gregorization response from the strain that's been taken from the wild very recently. It seemed like the wild strain, so so-called wild strain, I'll call it wild, but it's kind of been in the lab for a few generations. This wild strain seemed to have a slightly larger difference between the solitaris phase and the gregarious phase in terms of its behavioral um, activity, which was interesting compared with our Vesta locusts, as we call them. That wasn't a huge effect, though. I mean, it was it was kind of it was it was worth noting. It was something to be interested about, but it wasn't like huge difference. It was also interesting that um, we didn't find any particular. Um, well, we found actually that there's a difference in serotonin levels between the two strains in our actual neurochemical analysis as well. And we also discovered that well, um, some drugs that had been used in previous papers to actually manipulate serotonin, apparently didn't have quite a strong, as strong an effect as was reported before. So we feel like we need to actually branch out in our use of different um, compounds to try and manipulate serotonin levels, essentially. And the, and the drug you mentioned is, is what precisely? This is, a, this is a drug that's designed to precipitate the release of serotonin, or is it an insecticide? Or... Good question. It is uh, called alpha-methyltryptophan, or AMTP. And this drug is actually involved in um, competing in the serotonin synthesis pathway. This drug is employed to essentially try and deplete the amount of serotonin being produced in the in the kind of locus nervous system. That way, in that way, you can then try and discover how they gregorize when they don't have any serotonin to actually act on any of the um, receptors. Essentially, so that that suggests that, that serotonin isn't the only hormone chemical involved in this gregarization process there are others too because locusts can still gregarize they can still swarm so they do they do show a kind of gregarization response in with this drug but however that might imply that the drug is not as effective at depleting serotonin as we think it is and and the application of this research will it be to go on to create some kind of insecticide or some kind of control mechanism to reduce or inhibit swarming because it's incredibly destructive uh, locust swarming it can destroy whole harvests that's right yes um so in terms of our lab's work the um we're looking at the fundamental neuroscience of this behavioral transition which i wouldn't say would have a direct application to the production of these insecticides um for example if we were going to focus on serotonin unfortunately serotonin is found pretty much all the way through the animal kingdom so any, any attempts to manipulate this system would actually affect nearly all organisms that, that were, you know, basically most, most animals ha would be affected by that. Um, in terms of um, other, other kind of targets, so uh, there's quite a lot of work going on that tries to, as you say, find better tools to actually um, control locust populations. There's, there's um, I mean, currently 
countries that are vulnerable to this usually just um, douse the entire populations with insecticides, quite cheap ones, so that they can keep the population down, which is, actually, which is quite effective, actually. And, it's, and that the insecticides are currently cheap for them to use. However, these insecticides are currently also quite damaging to the rest of the environment. Like I said, they're quite nonspecific. So um, our, our work is mainly to just look at the neuroscience of the process. But there are efforts, for example, to use inhibitory RNA treatments on these populations if you can get them to, for example, just consume them and get them to act that way. And that's inhibitory RNA uh, process you, you talk about. So, mm. so that would actually prevent the synthesis of various proteins that are involved in the gregarization process. So that, that's, that's, a, that's, definitely a, that's definitely an avenue that some are, some are trying to take anyway. What's, what are the next steps? And in terms of the um, future steps for this, well, we're actually kind of still thinking about this ourselves and that we're probably going to continue to maybe look at the molecular mechanisms involved in phase change. A current avenue of mine, my current option at least, is that I would be interested in looking at some um, what's called immediate early gene um, um, expression. So this is, this is quite a common tool across um, vertebrates, actually. These genes are known as immediate early genes because they are expressed very highly in response to a neuron's activity, which means that if you image, if you kind of look for these genes expression, you can then work out which neurons were activated uh, recently, essentially. Thanks again to Jonathan Smith. Now on to Patrick Murphy, who is doing his work at the University of Liverpool. At 65, he's my oldest guest to date and has turned his history hobby into a PhD retirement project. In the early 20th century, an inspired political party with an inspiring leader tried to achieve the unthinkable. Patrick sets off by setting the political scene in the era of the All for Ireland League. The uh, particular period I'm looking at uh, is from about 1903 to 1918. So it, it encompasses that, uh, that period of, um, of very turbulent uh, times. Um, and, and this particular group that I'm looking at, the small political party, the All for Ireland League, I suppose is unique in its way because it was one of the only political uh, parties around that was actually advocating um, in, in a very proactive way um, some kind of policies of reconciliation between nationalists and unionists and Catholics and Protestants. Um, and by the time by the time this party had been been founded, how fractious was the political situation? Because it did culminate in a civil war in 1916, didn't it? Well, well, the civil war came in 1922, but there was a rebellion against British rule in 1916. That's right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, so the the Alfred League started about 1910, um, and it got really fractious. The the situation got uh, far worse during the Home Rule crisis, which went from about 1912 to 1914. Um, and that's when, um, you know, both Ireland uh, and some some people even said Britain came very close to a civil war. Um, and the only thing which prevented civil war in Ireland at the time was the outbreak of the First World War in August uh, 1914. Um, and during that period, the All for Ireland League, which at the time had uh, seven MPs, um, 
was one well was the only uh, the, the only nationalist party at the time, which was saying the only way we can come to some kind of uh, peaceful agreement here is if we make um, a lot of concessions to unionists, try and assure try and reassure them that their traditions and their um, interests will be uh, respected in in a, in a home rule Ireland. And, and the party was was founded in Cork, uh, and, and and the MPs were all from that constituency or constituencies around Cork. Is that correct? There were yeah, they, they had seven MPs. Um, they also took control of most of the local government in, in Cork. So Cork was unique in that sense, in that um, uh, in that it was controlled by a political party that didn't actually spread beyond the boundaries of Cork, in spite of the fact that it aspired to be an All-Ireland party. Uh, The the reasons for that is primarily down to the the leader of the All-Ireland League, which was a man called William O'Brien. And William O'Brien was a very charismatic character. He had been a leading figure in the Land League and the Land War in the 1880s and 90s. he had a very strong following in Cork. Um, he also married a very rich woman who funded um, the Alfred League and the various newspapers that O'Brien <coughs> um, started. And I suppose without her money and without his energy and charisma, it would never have, have existed um, and where did and where did William O'Brien get his inspiration from? I mean, he's obviously a very enlightened character. He was a very enlightened character. Um, I mean, as I said, he had a long history of um, conflict with uh, with unionists because of the uh, because of, of of the land war activities. Uh, this was a conflict between tenant, tenants and uh, and landlords um, all over Ireland. Uh, and O'Brien had been instrumental in coming to an agreement in 1903, um, which resulted uh, largely in that conflict um, being um, uh, sorted out uh, through the 1903 Land Act. And the, land, the 1903 Land Act was largely subsidised by the British uh, Exchequer um, and resulted in the transfer of millions of acres of land from um, from largely Protestant Unionist landlords to Irish Catholic Nationalist tenants, so the, the 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 whole of the country was transformed by this Land Act, basically. Um, and during the negotiations for this Land Act, um, William O'Brien became quite evangelical about uh, the possibilities of um, cooperation between Unionists and Protestants, uh, sorry, sorry, between Unionists and Nationalists. Um, and he argued that, you know, if, if something as difficult as, 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 and as intractable as the land problem could be sorted out by people sitting around the table, basically, and um, coming to an agreement, then any problem could be sorted out. Uh, and to, to get on now to the Orphur Island League, I was fascinated to read that some of the core support came from labourers and from the unemployed, so the kind of people you'd expect to be 
more drawn by angry, divisive populists than this kind of enlightened, unionist, reconciliatory political approach. So how did, how did William O'Brien manage to enfranchise these otherwise disenfranchised people? Um, I, I suppose in his own way, he was a populist. Um, I suppose you could say an enlightened populist rather than a uh, quite a nasty populist. In a way. Um, he he was very very good at um, at um, getting grassroots support. Uh, so when people began to 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 buy their um, their land back from landlords, he um, orchestrated uh, local groups to do this and and help them to do it. And and in doing that, he built up a very big reputation for himself and a grassroots organisation uh, around the, the county and city of Cork. Um, there was a great deal of, of disenchantment as well with the, uh, with the main nationalist party, the Irish Parliamentary Party. Uh, many people were alienated from, from this very large party. Um, uh, and, and, and this disenchantment was, was, was across the country, but it was only in Cork because of O'Brien's um, energy and charisma and money uh, that he was able to um, he, that, that he was able to harness this uh, this disenchantment. Um, and and where, so, where did it all start to go wrong? So, the, the years of of operation of the party, nineteen ten to nineteen eighteen, but only really active and, and meaningful as a political entity between 1910 and 1916. So, so what, at what point did the success start to ebb um, and uh, the, uh, the support tail off for this uh, party of reconciliation? Um, well, I think where, where it all started to go wrong was during the Home Rule crisis uh, of 1914. Um, and, and this was um, at a time when... Um, two large uh, militias, one unionist and one nationalist, had been created in Ireland, uh, both ironically armed with German guns. Um, and um, the situation be became extremely tense. The only, um, the only solution from the Liberal government's perspective was to propose a Home Rule Act with uh, partition, in other words, the six counties of Northern Ireland to be given their own self-government. Um, this was eventually accepted by the main nationalist party, but was rejected by the All Ireland League because they felt uh, this would be disastrous. Um, they, they felt that it would introduce a very destructive dynamic in, into, the, in, into Irish political life. Um, and the, I, I think they were, they were actually proved quite correct in that because it, it did. Um, it created Northern Ireland, which was like a ticking time bomb, uh, which eventually blew up in 1969. Um, but I think that's where it all began to go wrong. Um, because he opposed, because O'Brien and the All Ireland League opposed the Home Rule Bill, they didn't actually vote against it in the end, they abstained, but they were able then to be, um, they were able to be pilloried by the, uh, by the rest of the nationalists uh, in Ireland as, as, uh, as being obstructive and of trying to uh, destroy the Home Rule Bill. Um, and, and 
I, I know this isn't really part of your area of research, but uh, I'd like to ask the question anyway. Now that Article 50 has been triggered uh, and uh, the, the United Kingdom will be leaving the European Union, do you think the peace process is strong enough in Northern Ireland to withstand possible upheavals? Um, I'm, I mean, I, I, don't want, I don't want to draw any comparisons between <clears throat> what happened in 1910 and 1914 to what, what's happening now. Uh, I mean, my feeling is, is that it's, it's an extremely um, difficult time at the moment. I think there's, there's a number of things happening. There's obviously Brexit um, and the majority of the nationalist population voted for uh, or rather to stay within the European Union. Um, and I think probably a, a small majority of of the uh, unionist population voted to leave. So that introduces a new split that was never there before. Um, I think the other thing that's happening is that uh, at the last elections, um, there is now only one seat between... Um, unionist parties and parties that could be considered um, uh, uh, nationalists. So the original reason for setting up Northern Ireland was that unionists would have an inbuilt majority and that inbuilt majority is now disappearing. So in a way it's a bit of a perfect storm. We have Brexit, we have the two communities moving towards a kind of electoral uh, equilibrium, where they're almost equal, and that makes um, unionists, I think, uh, very nervous indeed. Uh, I mean, I don't think there's any immediate um, risk of uh, a breakdown in the peace process, um, but it will depend on how things go, because Sinn Féin are now demanding um, uh, another referendum on a united Ireland, I don't think that's going to happen, at least in the near future. But this um, this this adds a great deal of attention to, to the situation. My thanks again to Patrick Murphy. That's it for now, but don't forget there is bound to be a PubHT event close to where you live and where you can hear many of the researchers featured in these broadcasts speak live about their work. Check out the PubHT website for more information, and if you're a researcher, any PubHT branch organiser in the UK, Portugal, Ireland or France would be delighted to have you present your research. Meanwhile, thanks for listening, and I'll be back in May.